nostalgia is an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, sometimes we have a lot of clarity when it comes to whatever it is we're nostalgic about. You know that feeling that reminds us of something that makes us feel kind of warm and cozy inside of it? And I know it sounds weird, uh, but there are a couple things that are really nostalgic to me. For one, there's this bird that lives around our house, and whenever it caws, is that the sound? Is that what's the vocalization? It's not a chirp. It's like a call. It's a tweet. It's, it's a tweet. Whenever the bird tweets, it sounds exactly like the the, the tweet or caw of a bird that was in a video game that I played all the time growing up. And so whenever I hear this, I go back and play Age of Empires in my parents' basement, and I'm just like, it's this sound that sits to me as this experience of childhood joy. Similarly, for me, the smell of a tent always brings me back to camping with my family. Um, the smell of a tent, the sound of sleeping bags uh, getting unpacked, it just reminds me of, of, of camping up at, uh, uh, I can't even hit the lake's name. Yeah. It's not Sealy, it's up near, it's up past Sealy. I can't think of it right now. Um, it's up there, there's a lake. And we used to camp there, and it just reminds me of that. And holidays, are rich with nostalgia, right? We just got done with Thanksgiving, you go home, you have traditions. But I imagine um, that for you and for me, the king of holidays is Christmas when it comes to memory lane. There are specific bells we hear that are Christmas bells, songs we hear that are distinctly Christmas songs, and lights which, went up, which if they went up at any other time during the year wouldn't make sense. But when they're on your house during Christmas, they're Christmas lights. And yet, Oftentimes, we're nostalgic over things which we lack clarity on, right? How many of you have? I should just unmute myself. That helps. Great. Um, <laughs> that would be why Johnny's freaking out in the back. Um, so how many of you guys have had those times where you smell something, you taste something, you see something, and you know it reminds you of something, but you can't place what it is? There's this smell I have that reminds me of something about my preschool. Weird, because that's almost three decades ago. And yet I remember it. But I, it, I smell it, and I'm like, what is this smell? And it's almost like that thing, whenever you encounter whatever it is, it kind of like eats in your head like a bug as you're trying to like sort through your memories like an inception, connecting dots between these experiences that you have. We don't know why it's nostalgic, but when we experience it, we experience kind of the warm, fuzzy feelings of home. And the more I think about nostalgia, the more I think that the way we understand nostalgia and memories is often the same way we understand the word glory. You see, inside the church and outside the church, that word is a popular word. It's used in all sorts of situations, and sometimes it's easy to define. There's the glory of winning the big game, of passing the final exam, of making the summit of the mountain you set out to climb, or finishing the book you always wanted to read like Infinite Jest and just reaching the end of this book that single-handedly kills rainforests. And yet, there are also times where we try to describe glory, but we're grasping at words. We're wrestling with how it is we can articulate what it is that we're experiencing. And in one sense, we can point to glory because we've experienced it, right? But on the other hand, when we have to express what glory is, if we have to define glory outside of our experience, it's hard. Is glory just anything that's bright and shiny and majestic? Is glory uh, an experience or is it an attribute of something? You see, both with nostalgia and with glory, sometimes they're things which are hard to understand and really have clarity on what it is that it's pointing us to. But in the Bible, God wants us to understand with great clarity 
what glory is. And this is why the Christmas story is important to understand. The Christmas season is rich with nostalgia. And in all of this, through the Christmas story, God is calling us to remember glory. And when we look at the Bible, there's, it's remarkable when we see what God is trying to do in the birth of Jesus, and it helps us understand more clearly what the glory of God means. You see, what happened, think about it, what is it that happened in Christmas which made such a demand on our emotions? Even culturally, nothing demands thoughtfulness and nostalgia like Christmas, but what is it about Christmas that has such mastery over our whole experience of this specific season? And what does it have to do with the glory of God? And this is what we're going to see tonight in the last part of our Christmas series, um, is that Christmas shows us the glory of God by showing us Jesus the Christ. So again, the Christ, that's not his last name, it's the title, Jesus the Christ, which means the Messiah. Christmas shows us the glory of God by showing us Jesus the Christ. So let's pray quickly and then we'll dive in. Lord, we are at the end of a semester Um, Before us are finals um, and road trips back home and holidays and Christmas and the New Year's conference in Austin, Texas. And there's all sorts of things that are vying for our attention that kind of make us just, we never want to live in the moment because we're always living in the future. Uh, But Lord, I pray that as we look at your word tonight, that you, uh, just for a brief uh, 30 minutes, you set a pause on our hearts that we may focus on your word, that you would be gracious in giving us uh, ears to hear um, and hearts to understand what it is that you've put in your word for us to know. And so we ask this knowing that you love to answer the prayers of your people, and we pray this in your name. Amen. There it is. All right. Uh, Tonight's message is going to be split up into two parts. The first part is going to be defining glory. If we had to define glory biblically, how would we define glory? And then the second part is, where do we see glory? And how do we see glory in scripture? And the first part we're going to do is we're going to step way back from the Christmas story. And when I say way back, I mean back to the second book of your Bible. And this is an important scene to remember because this is where uh, we see the first part of defining glory. We want to look at this scene in Israel's history and we want to help it define for us what glory is so that we can better understand it. And at this point, this scene, this story we're looking at, we actually just sang about it tonight, about Moses on Mount Sinai. And what had happened is God had brought his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them. And God did this by calling a man named Moses um, to lead the people out of captivity and into the freedom that God had promised them in the promised land. And now, so they've been delivered. They're not yet in the promised land, but they're delivered from slavery. And God calls Moses up onto the mountain or up onto Mount Sinai. And he's going to give Moses the laws and regulations that this people should have as free people. They once lived under the laws of Egypt But now that they're liberated, God says, this is what my free people live like. This is what you look like. This is how you worship me. This is how you relate to one another. And so Moses goes up on this mountain to talk with God. And there's this cloud that rests over it. And they're up there. And uh, God is giving Moses the law. All the while, the people are down in the valley. And the problem is, is that Moses spent a long time on the mountain. And while Moses was up there, The Israelites, who were just brought out of slavery, they began to get fearful. They thought maybe Moses, this guy who brought them out of Egypt, maybe he died. 
And there was this palpable fear amongst this now huge nation with no visible leader, no social structure, no rules or regulations to moderate them. And so what happens is, kind of the junior leaders who are in Israel, they, 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 they gather together and they say, hey, if we don't, these people are losing hope. So if we don't give them something to worship, if we don't give them something to have confidence, there's going to be panic that breaks out amongst these people because Moses is gone. We can't see him. We can't hear from God. We're alone in the wilderness. And look at what Aaron proposes, one of the leaders of Israel. In Exodus 32, verses 2 through 4, it'll be up on the screen. He says this, So Aaron said to them, that's to the people of Israel, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see, because Moses was gone, they feared that so too was God. If Moses wasn't there, they had no access to God. And so what happened is they took these, the, this jewelry that they received from the Egyptians and they gave them to Aaron and he fashioned them, he melted them down and he makes this metal statue of a cow and he ascribes everything that should have been ascribed to God, he ascribes to this cow. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is the God who delivered you this cow. You can imagine the anger that burned inside of God as he is up on a mountain, graciously giving Moses laws which would lead the people to him, while simultaneously at the same side, or at the same time, the people are mocking God by creating an oversized cow and ascribing it the attributes of glory. This is our God, this statue. And so what happens is Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees the calf. He is grieved. He destroys it. And the first thing he does is he goes back up to the mountain. He is going back to God to intercede on behalf of the people. He's going to try to spare them from their sins. He's going to try to protect them because of what they had done. Now, what they had done was some crazy dumb stuff, right? We've all probably uh, had moments where you say, well, I wasn't obeying God. But none of you, via 10 plagues and a bunch of miracles, were brought out of a nation. And then a month later, you're like, no, that cow did it. That cow's the dude that we just made with the jewelry. That's the guy who saved me, right? None of you have done that. You know, that's how quick these Israelites had turned their back on God. Faster than you could say, hey, look, they're melting down jewelry to make a cow. These guys turned over on God. And Moses sees what happened. And because God had made Moses this intermediary, between the people and God, Moses rightly diagnoses their problem. Moses is able to say, this is what's wrong with these people. And with that information, he's going to go to God and he's going to say, this is what your people need. This is what needs to happen in the hearts of the people. Now I'm betting none of you in here consider yourself to be sinless, right? Even if you say, well, I'm not that bad. We could all point to a place where we've thought something we shouldn't have thought or said something we shouldn't have said or done something we shouldn't have done. And we might minimize our sin. But sin in scripture, it's not a 
it's not a, a percentage-based thing. Well, I'm 99% good, therefore I'm good. It's pass-fail. You're either sinful or you're not sinful. And it's a serious thing because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin is not a mess-up or a mistake that we make to get swept under the rug. Sin is a lethal disease which needs to be dealt with. But now think about how you would answer this question. What would it take for you to stop sinning? And what, what is your hope from this problem of sin? What would it take for you to stop sinning? Sin is wrong, but then the punishment of sin is death. And so what would it take to give you hope from that death? What would have to, hap- have to happen in your life for you to avoid the penalty of sin and also prevent in the future the idolatry that the Israelites just displayed of treating something else other, or treating something else as God, which is not God. And what Moses is doing when he's going up the mountain is he's answering that question for the Israelites. Moses says, I know what you need to stop sinning. And he's going to go ask God to meet that need. And so Moses goes to God and his request, the thing that Moses wants them to have to stop them from sinning is that Moses would know God better. That was it. He goes up, he says, show me your way so that I may go to the people. You see, if Moses could better know what the presence of God was like, he could go down and he could tell the people how beautiful and how wonderful this God is. He could hold up a promise that came from obeying God, which is better than the promise that came from disobeying God. And Moses wanted to experience God in a new way so that he could tell people of that. Isn't that our go-to defense for anything? Like my mom makes the best cookies and they say, nah. And then what do we say? Try it. I dare you to try it, to try this cookie and not say it's the best cookie. And this is what Moses is doing. He's saying, God, our people are down there and you are up here and you've chosen me. Out of all the Israelites, you've chosen me to come up here. Show me your goodness. Show me your presence and I will go down and I will tell them what you are like because what they need most is to see and experience your presence. And so that's the request Moses gives to God. And look at how God responds to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know your name. It's an important thing. Because Moses had found favor with God, God was going to reveal himself to Moses in a special way. Moses had asked to see a greater picture of God's presence, to see God's ways, and God says, because you found favor with me, I'm going to do it. But now, if you have your finger there, if it's up on the screen, look at what happens immediately after this. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, why? Why would Moses ask that? God, Moses had already given a request, and God said, yeah, I'll do it. And so why is it that Moses now comes and he asks to see God's glory? And actually, grammatically, this word in Hebrew, this show me word, is, it's, has some big emphasis on it. It's, really, it's like this pleading, this desperation of show me, reveal to me, uh, expose to me, overwhelm me with your glory, God. Why? Why is this the request of Moses? You see, as we said earlier, glory is something that's hard to understand. But here, when we examine this story, we can begin to understand glory more clearly as Moses unfolds in this scene. Why does Moses want to see God's glory 
after already asking to see God's presence. Because to experience the presence of God is most ultimately to experience the glory of God. It's not that Moses asked for the presence of God and he's like, okay, uh, what else can I get? Uh, show me your glory. Like, well, give me an inch, I'll take a mile. Moses wasn't asking for something different. He's not asking for something new. He's asking for that presence to be made wonderfully weighty in his midst. That the presence of God would give way to the glory of God. So how does God respond to this request? Look with me at verses 19 through 23 and just pay attention to what God is saying here. And he, that's God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So that's the Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he, that's the Lord, said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So there's a lot going on in this text, um, but here's what I want to do. I want to take what we just read, the verses 19, or you back it up to verse 17 through 23, um, and I want to use this text where Moses is asking to see God's glory, and God is responding to him. And so I want to take this, and I want us to see what does this teach us about God's glory. Because here God is showing Moses his glory. His glory is going to pass before him. And you might have no idea. You're like, Tyler, this is a Christmas series. We're in Exodus. Moses is on a mountain. There's like no lights. There's no trees. There's no Santa. What's going on? I promise it's going to make sense. I hope it will. If it doesn't, then you can get your money back later. Um, but just bear with me here. Because if we want to know what it is that Christmas calls to our memory, if we want to know what it is that the story of Christmas should evoke inside of us, we need to understand the glory of God. So I want to look at four attributes of God's glory here really quickly. Don't panic, okay? They're going to be really quick. And here's what I want us to see is first, glory is only experienced by those in a right relationship with God. Okay? Glory is only experienced by those in a right relationship with God. You see, oftentimes we think of God's glory as this abstract thing. Like somewhere there's this well of shimmery, shiny glory that is this impersonal thing that we need to find. But God, God's glory is relational. The reason why God was willing to answer this request to Moses is because Moses found favor in a relationship with God. And in that relationship, God is going to expose his glory. Moses didn't climb a mountain to see a view and see the glory of God. Moses climbed a mountain to see God himself and be exposed to God. That's the first thing. Glory is only experienced by those in a right relationship with God. Second, glory is the presence of God. Okay, we kind of looked at this a little bit before, but if glory is only experienced in a relationship, then what is it we're relating to? We're relating to God himself. Because it's relational, God is central to his own glory. The most glorious thing about God is God. That's what we need to see. And so Moses connects the presence of God. When I am in the presence of God, I am in the glory of God. Which means we cannot be relationally present with God without seeing God as glorious. 
There's no disconnect for Moses. To, to have a relationship with God is to see God as glorious. Do you see that tension that's in there? That's like to say, well, I, I want to love my wife, but I'm not going to see her as lovely. Or I'm going to see my wife as lovely, but I'm not going to love her. There's no disconnect. If God is glorious and we're in his presence, then to be in his presence is to be in his glory. So that's point two. God's glory is the presence of God. Three, God's glory is primarily seen in the goodness and mercy of God. This is interesting. So here we see Moses says, I want to see your glory. Show it to me. And we actually see God alluding to this point where he's like, I'm going to pass before you with all my glory. And then later on, uh, it goes on to describe this moment when God passes him by, but it says he passes him by and he declares. And so it never tells us what Moses sees. That's unimportant in this narrative. What's important is what God says. And what God says here is he says, I'm going to show you my glory. I'll be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And I will be gracious to those who I will be gracious. You see, what makes God glorious and accessible is that he's merciful. If we want to see the glory of God, we must see God's zeal for goodness and mercy to save and to give grace. And then fourth, God's glory is dangerous and it is radiant. We see the danger of God's glory in the passage we just read. Look back at Exodus 33, verse 20. But he, that's God, said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Okay, there's the danger of God's glory. God's glory is so vibrant, so powerful, so pure, so radiant, that men cannot be present before it without dying. And those of you who have read the Old Testament in the temple, there's the Holy of Holies where God's presence is. And when priests would go in there, they were terrified that perhaps they wouldn't come out. Because if you messed up a cleansing ritual at some point, if you hadn't confessed your sin, if you hadn't done the right sacrifices, and there was sin in your life that was not atoned for, to be in the presence of God is to be consumed by the burning affection and purity of God. See, oil Or gas can't be around fire without being consumed. And sinful humans cannot be around God without being consumed by his righteousness. The perfection of God is a threat to sinful humanity. And we see this danger once more, actually. And so we fast forward um, to the end of chapter 34, where God has given the law to Moses for a second time because he was so mad he came down the first time and he broke them. Uh, that was a bad move on Moses' part. And so uh, there are lots of rocks there, so it was good. He made some more. And then uh, we see this beginning in verse 29 of chapter 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin on his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. 
Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, the skin on Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in again to speak with God. So here's what we see here in this first part. We see God describing this relationship of glory. Because Moses has found favor, because God is seeking and proclaiming his goodness and his mercy, because God's presence is there, there is this glory. But here we see there is an aspect of radiant glory to to God. So vibrant and so powerful that Moses' face lit up like Rudolph just seeing the proclamation of that glory. Right? God says, you can't see my face, you can only see my back. And we never actually even see him showing his back in this text. And yet Moses encounters something so vibrant that his face is the secondhand illumination of it. There are lights and beams coming out of his face. Now, how many of you have heard this story before? Okay, most of you. Have you ever stopped to think, why is it that Moses put a veil over his face? Is it just like, Moses, it's 11 o'clock at night. Turn the freaking lights out. <laughs> is it just this annoying, like, look at this dude over here, uh, glowing face? Is it just because it was obnoxious or socially awkward for Moses to have a bright face? Look back at Exodus 34, verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And then it goes on to actually describe uh, the people returned to Moses, which meant at one point they were close and they ran. You see, the people saw Moses' face and they were terrified. Why? Because when Moses came down from the mountain where he encountered God himself, he entered the midst of a sinful people And they knew that that glory was a threat to their sin. And so Moses covered his face to care for them so that they would not be exposed to the danger of God's glory burning in their presence. You see, Moses' solution, remember when he went up, the solution was for the people to see with clarity the glory of God. And yet when he came down, the sinful people were terrified at the glory which was seen in the face of Moses. And the solution for us is the same. When you think about what it is you need in your life, I could tell you what you need is the glory of God. You only get there through salvation. We need that salvation to get that glory. But God's glory is the presence of everything beautiful and the absence of everything less than perfect. It is the most ultimate experience to have ever been dreamed up in the heart of man because God is the most ultimate being in the entire universe. The problem is twofold. One, we can't get that glory. We don't have access to that glory because our sin has separated us from it. We don't have favor with God. And because of that, no matter how wonderful, how radiant, how full that presence is, we can't go near it. Because, and this is point two, if we did go near it, it would destroy us. And it would kill us because of our sin. 
and that would be, that wouldn't be God gone wild. That would be the most just thing to happen. We're not shocked when bleach kills germs. We shouldn't be shocked when God's glory eliminates sin. And this is why the Christmas story is so important. See, in the story of Moses, we saw glory defined. And now it's in the story of Jesus where we see glory most clearly. This is where we see the second point of seeing glory. And pick up with me in Luke 2, verse 8. Just listen here, okay? If you're going to turn your Bibles, don't turn there yet. Just get there in a second and just listen. And in the same region, I'm looking at you, Jackson. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Did you feel that? You see, maybe, maybe you, it, we read that and you felt nothing. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong or broken with you. There's no hidden thing that you missed. Um, but I imagine that most of you, when you heard that there were shepherds out in their fields tending their flocks by night, we were just overwhelmed. Like, this is the Christmas story. We, like, right, we, we begin thinking in terms of like frosted windows and gingerbread and Christmas carols and candlelight services. It brings back waves of this, right? We know this. This is like this resonating story inside of our brain. And perhaps uh, you're, you know what's going to happen next, but I want you to think, why do you feel that way? Why is it that this story seems nostalgic to you? What is it about this story that is affecting your emotions? And if you're in here and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is weird. I don't have any emotions towards this. I want to say, why is it then that we should have emotion towards this story? What is it about this story which is powerful? Let's continue in Luke 2, 9 through 14. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, that is to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there's with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so here we see shepherds at night, in the still, in the quiet, interrupted, by something crazy. Like, this makes a Mannheim Christmas steamroller concert look like a child's light bright machine. This was radiant glory filling the sky. One angel, surprise, it's one angel, then like boom, like a thousand angels, like talking, proclaiming, and these shepherds are like, I don't know what's going on. There's words and lights and there's sound. And that's what just happened in this text, okay? Now the story continues. Verse 15 through 20. I love, I love this part. When the angels went from heaven, or went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, what? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be there first? Like, is this immediately what they went to, or were they just like, did, did you see that? <laughs> I think so. 
did you see that? And then they say this, let's, uh, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to them the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, this is the most mom verse in the entire Bible, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it was told to them. There it is. The Christmas story of shepherds and the birth of Jesus. And maybe you've heard this for the thousandth time just right now, or maybe perhaps for the first time. But the question we need to ask ourselves again is what makes this memorable? I mean, even as I'm reading that, I'm reading things like in a baby, in a manger. And I'm wanting like, like precious memories voices to come out as I'm saying this. Like it just seems so like this beautiful, inf- like we hushed dulcet tones and like soft fireside lights and Hallmark Channel things are going on when I, I did that. Because it's just wired into us. As maybe it's just me with my backdrop of Christianity, but I think there's an aspect of this that is shared inside of our culture. But why is this story so memorable? Is it just because sheep and shepherds and babies make for a great children's book or a cute nativity scene? Now remember, let's go back. Exodus 33, there's a sinful people who have a problem. And Moses identified in the heart of sinful man what they need is to see the glory of God in order to be saved. So with that in mind, let's be honest here. With glory in mind, which two of these scenes would you rather have experienced in your life? Would you rather be in the soft, dulcet manger scene, standing, staring at the baby, Or would you rather be where there are lights and sounds and a cosmic choir that interrupted this still night? Which of these are you more likely to go tell your friend about in class the next day? I mean, if we had to describe, honestly, which of these would be most memorable, the most nostalgic, perhaps the most glorious, we would have to say at face value, it was the scene in the fields, right? That's got everything that we look for when we think about glory. And doesn't it actually have everything that it seems our Christian culture in America values as important? Lights, experience, sound, emotions, sensory overloads. But so let's look. Let's look at what the shepherds experienced in each of these things. Look back at Luke 2 verse 9 in the field. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. What is it that that cosmic experience produced in them? Fear. In the field, there was fear. But look at Luke 2, verse 20. And the shepherds returned, that's from the stable, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So now, which experience would you rather have? Well, we know the right answer, right? But why? 
Why is it that this child, even if his name is Jesus, is a greater scene of glory than the scene in the field? What is it that these shepherds were astounded by that resulted in glory and praise on one end and fear on the other end? Look at Luke 2, 15 through 20. And I want you to look at, they're emphasized up there on the screen, at the distinctions that stood out in the mind of the shepherds. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What did the Lord make known to them? Did the Lord speak to them? Hey, this is bright. There's angels singing and there's glory all around. Is that what God made known to them? Or did God make known to them a message about a savior being born in a city? And it continues. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them. Did they get to the manger and they're like, yo, 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 yo. Let me tell you what we just saw. There were, there were like, it was like, like big time lights and like one angel, lots of angels and like everyone's talking. No. They said, hey, some angels told us that a savior was going to be born today in the city of David. And all who heard it, heard the saying, they wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So what they heard, they heard what had been told to them. And what they had seen is what had been told to them. Not what they experienced in the field, but seeing the Christ that had been told to them by the angels. You see, the message about Jesus, the story of a Savior, is what stood out to the shepherds. And it was the sight of Jesus which led them to worship. You see, if you were to ask them what was most glorious that night, they would skip past the light show and heavenly choir and they would move towards the babe in a manger. You see, the nostalgia they treasured in their heart was clear in their mind. On that night, they saw Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they saw a glory more clear than they ever did in the experience in that field. They saw a glory greater than the radiance they witnessed in the sky. And what was most captivating to them was not the host of heaven, but the Savior laid in the hay. Why? Isn't this so opposite what, we've, what our culture would say is the greatest experience? What our culture would say is the greatest glory? What our culture would say is the greatest level of satisfaction or confidence? Why is it that this Jesus resulted in all those emotions that we so desperately want from other things? Of joy and of glory and of praise, of satisfaction. And I think it's because we wrestle with this because we don't understand the significance or the source of glory in the Bible. See, we listed four attributes of glory in Exodus 33, but so often we just focus on the last one. Glory is something radiant, something shiny, something experienced as the side effect of something else. And we all want an experience of glory. And the Bible explains why we want this experience of glory. Look at what God says in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. 
Peter says this, he says, his, that's God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see, in the eyes of God, salvation is nothing more than a call to his own glory. That's why we want it. That's why everyone's looking for it. It's because that's what we were made for. We were made to experience something like that. And I think it's because of our innate desire for glory and our lack of clarity on what glory is that we often turn to other things to supplement what we don't naturally see in God. But we dress it up like we want God, right? We want the experience of nature. Man, this is the creed of Montana. If we can experience nature, we can experience the glory of God. Right? How many of you, when you're like, so we're going to go on spring retreats, it's going to be at a lake, it's going to be beautiful. We're going to, like when we do devotion times, no one's going to go like, I'm going to go sit in the bathroom. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to sit in the bathtub. I'm going to pull the curtain. I'm going to read the Bible there. It's going to be majestic, right? It's like a mad rush to the dock. Like if I can sit and read my Bible and see the sunrise, then I'll experience the glory of God. Or we, we dress it up another way. If we can go and experience a worship concert, and the experience is right, then we'll know and we'll experience the glory of God. Or we're more deluded and we say, if we can have the experience of a committed relationship, of sex, of comfort, then I'll feel the glory of God and I'll be satisfied. And we seek out these things because we too know that we need that glory to be satisfied. We don't turn to things because they're lackluster. We turn to things because we see them as glorious. But the narrative of scripture is that we cannot experience the glory of God outside of a relationship with God. Because the glory of God is nothing more than the experience of seeing God for who he is. Glory exists because God exists. This is why we need Jesus. We cannot relate to God unless we first relate first and foremost to Jesus through faith. You see, in Jesus, we see the glory that was defined so clearly in Exodus 33. The glory that the people of Israel couldn't see, even though it was right there physically on the mountain in the face of Moses. But in Jesus, we see it more clearly. You see, if the glory of God is only experienced in a right relationship with God, who is in a better relationship with God than Jesus himself? We just read in Luke 2.14, Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Who are the angels talking about there? It's not the stinky shepherds. It's Jesus. There's finally a man on earth with God is pleased. This sinless, spotless, perfect lamb of righteousness. He's pleased with Jesus. We saw glory as experiencing the presence of God. I mean, we were just in Colossians 1 three weeks ago where it says, In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, to reside to be present. Jesus was the full presence of God because he was God. We just sang, um, we sang actually a historic Nicene confession. What we sang in one of our Christmas songs, true God of true God, begotten, not created. Those are words that the Christian church agreed upon to separate them from heretics. Men spilled blood over those words to protect Jesus as God, the Son in human flesh. Jesus was the presence of God. We saw the glory of God being namely the mercy and goodness of God 
And here we see Jesus, the salvation and mercy of God, coming to die on a cross in the place of sinners. And we see that, saw the danger of God's glory. And we all know that Jesus, though sinless, went to die to face the danger of sin so that we wouldn't have to. So why wouldn't we see Jesus as glorious? Because in the same way Moses' face was veiled, Jesus was veiled in the flesh. The shepherds didn't go and see night bright Jesus. The disciples didn't go and see this glowing man calling them to follow him. They saw Jesus veiled in the flesh. You see, our series is called Condescending Love, not because God speaks down to us like we're children, but because God condescended down to us to save us. You see, in heaven, Jesus was only radiant. He was all of the things. He was the presence of God. He was merciful with God. He was present as part of the Trinity with God. He was radiant like God. But when he took on flesh, the fullness of his divinity was concealed in the form of humanity. But he did it for the exact same reason Moses covered his face. He did it for our good. He had to become human because he had to live and die in the flesh so that those who were dead in the flesh could be restored to him safely, could be brought back to the glory of God through himself. The shepherds saw that. They saw Jesus. This is remarkable. Here are these dudes out in a field. The angels give them this clear message of a savior who is coming, who is Christ the Lord. He is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And they go, and what stands out to them is not the nostalgia of a mother and child, nor the humiliation of a baby being born in a manger. What stood out to them was what the angels said about a savior was true. That in Jesus, God was made visible and accessible through faith. We me, you, you cannot see the glory of God and live. But God in his mercy has shown us Jesus so that we can look upon him and live. The shepherds saw this and they saw something as more glorious than a heavenly concert. They saw their hope. See, I love the Christmas carol that we're gonna sing here in just a moment. It says, veiled in the flesh, Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, to walk away from Christmas and to not, ex not see Jesus as the true need for your soul is to miss the glory of God. You see, if the shepherds would have stopped at the message and been like, I'm good, that's excellent. That's super. If the shepherds would have stopped at the bright shining lights and be like, I saw it. We're good. That's great. They would have missed everything. They had to see Jesus to see the glory of God. They had to know Jesus to satisfy the wonder of their hearts. We should follow their lead. We should stop trying to see the glory of God in things that are not God to walk away from Christmas, to have memories of religious nostalgia without having it lead you to the person of Jesus is to miss the all-satisfying glory 
of God. If you want worship, if you want a clear definition of what makes God beautiful, if you want an understanding of glory, which goes beyond simply a bright light or an experience, you must relate to God through Jesus Christ. You must know him through the experience of his mercy. You must taste the salvation that is offered freely to dying souls. And when you have tasted that, you have tasted the glory of God. See, culturally, there's a lot wrong with our world today. But we are afforded in this holiday a Christmas where everyone stops and recognizes something. It makes us nostalgic. But what does that nostalgic point us towards? The bells on Christmas morn, to sing carols of our coming king, to gaze on lights adorning our town. All of these are graces to the Christian if and only if they remind us of the day when God's glory veiled himself in human flesh to ransom souls to himself. And then the rings of the bells become the cry of those who are reconciled. The songs of the carolers are the joy of ransomed souls. And the lights are images of darkness pierced by something beautiful. See, we could say Merry Christmas until our lungs tire, but unless we know the Christ of Christmas, our nostalgia, spiritually themed or not, is nothing but memories for the sake of memories. So as you leave here and you encounter traces of nostalgia, the story of Christmas, the feeling of home. God is calling you to remember the glory that was made accessible through Jesus Christ. And in that we find our ultimate end, the glory of God in the form of man, destined to die so that man might live. And my hope is that as you go home and you see that, and you try to connect the dots between what you're feeling and what's significant, is that you return glorifying and praising God for all that you have seen and heard. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have made your glory known to us. Lord, your glory is infinite. It is unending. It is wholly other. Even after naming four attributes of glory, we cannot understand it. And yet you have made it known to us, visible to us, not in the most magnificent sunrise, not in the most pristine landscape, not in the most romantic wedding, not in the most dramatic film, but in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray you give us eyes to see what lies behind the man, Jesus. That we see in him the one who died for our sin so that we might be restored to the glory of God and experience something that drives all of our sin to the furthest corner of our lives because it seems so insignificant. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.